Well, good morning. Or at least it's a good morning where I am. Sun's come out. Looks like it's going to be a, a fun day. A lot of rain the last few weeks, but we kind of need that rain, so that's a good thing. Uh, some folks are going to join us here in a few minutes, and we can continue in our uh, series. Um, we're taking our ideas out of Hebrews chapter 11, looking at some of those heroes that are found in that incredible chapter. We've called this series The Sojourners. I'm excited about this one, so let me get a give a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father, we do thank you for the blessing of technology where I can sit in my my living room, my dining room, I can turn on and my friends can hear us uh, talk about a hero, someone that hopefully can be an example and an encouragement. You would use uh, these words, his story, to, to uplift someone uh, within the sound of my voice today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, the truth of the matter is none of us, not a single one of us, like to suffer by ourselves. There's nothing worse than having emotional or psychological or, for that matter, physical pain and, and being by yourself. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis says that friendship is born at, at, that, at that exact moment when one person says to another person, what? You too? When we realize that we're not alone in our pain and suffering, there is great comfort and encouragement. Whether it's physical pain or some sort of emotional uh, depression or discouragement, maybe even emotional trauma, whether it's isolation or on the spiritual end of things, suffering with guilt or, or shame itself, the regular frustrations of everyday life, these are all very common, and, and they're maladies that are a part of, of all of our lives from time to time. But there are some among us that seem to suffer more significantly than others, and the pain seems to be more serious, and the discouragement seems to be more severe. There's something when that is true that's incredibly comforting about knowing there are others who have, who have gone down that path. Uh, that we're not the only ones that have those kinds of issues or those kinds of sufferings. And our fourth sojourner, it's a mouthful of a word, sojourner, our fourth one uh, is, is such an example. And I have really enjoyed reading and studying additionally about him this last week. He's known at the, as the, um, the great preacher of the 19th century. You know him as Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was an amazing man. Um, he did not live that long, but the impact of his ministry was significant. He is an amazing man of God who suffered greatly, both physically and emotionally. He struggled with, with as he would call it, melancholy, deep despair and, dis uh, and depression. His life story, though, I think can be an encouragement to all of us. Let's dive in a little bit to his personal background. He was born in 1834 in the time of, 
of uh, Queen Victoria. Uh, Great Britain's at its highlight. Uh, it is it is at the peak of its worldwide uh, prestige. It's the time of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, things are being discovered. It's the time of uh, Thomas Edison and Alexander Graham Bell. They're figuring out how lights work and radios and, and telephones. Steamships were replacing sailing ships. Uh, railroads were exploding all across Great Britain and for that matter around the world. Spiritually too, there had been some amazing days that had just gone by. The, the first two spiritual great awakenings had, had already occurred. And then Charles was born. He was born the first of, wait for it, 17 children, 17. And only eight of them uh, survived though uh, through adolescence. When he was a, a youngster, his parents were not able to care for him. And so he was raised by his grandmother and his grandfather. They had a tremendous influence on his life. They were uh, in a little town called Essex, northeast, I guess, of London. No, the north, yeah, the northeast of London. And, and the relationship he had with his grandparents was, was uh, kind of interesting to, to note. His grandfather was a, a Puritan, and so he read uh, a great deal uh, to, uh, to Spurgeon as a child. And his grandmother was a, a huge, huge fan of Isaac Watts, the hymn writer. You know him as the author of Joy to the World or um, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. One of my favorite ones, though, is Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed? So she would pay him a penny every time he'd memorize uh, one of those hymns. And his grandfather just uh, filled him full of, of the theology and the writings of the, of the Puritans. He, he read a great deal, and he read early. Um, some suggest that he was reading long before he was five years old read uh, John Bunyan uh, a, a great deal, Pilgrim's Progress. It's said that he read it over a hundred times in his lifetime. Um, Richard Baxter, uh, another Puritan writer, was a favorite of Spurgeon's. And so because he was doing all that reading, because he had that kind of influence from his grandparents, he was very aware of his spiritual condition, even as a, as a youngster. Um, in fact, um, he, uh, he described himself during those, uh, you know, childhood and adolescent years. Let me read how he uh, described himself. He said, I was years and years upon the brink of hell. I, I, uh, I mean, in my own feeling, I was unhappy. I was despondent. I was despairing. I dreamed of hell. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness before God. He was overwhelmed in his spirit about his standing before God. The truth of the matter is, he says, um, I, I knew I was lost. But when he was about 15 years old, the story is told that there was a nasty snowstorm and uh, trying to get out of the wind and, and the cold, uh, Spurgeon slipped into a little church, not one that he attended, not one that he knew, but he was just trying to get in and out of the storm. As it, as it were, there was a, a poorly trained substitute lay preacher doing the preaching that day. We've all kind of moaned when we got to church and our, 
our favorite pastor wasn't preaching. Well, in this case, uh, this young man was, was not well-schooled at all. And so what he, all he did was he kept repeating his text. He was, uh, he was preaching out of Isaiah 45, verse number 22. Here's what that passage says. It says, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And he just kept repeating that. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And as, and as Charles you know, uh, snuck into the back of that building uh, to get out of the storm, he, he truly got out of a major spiritual storm because those words had penetrated his heart. And after a while, Luke, uh, the, the writers of his biography say, Charles did look and he got saved that day. Spurgeon is married, or was married. He was married to a gal named Susanna, and they had two twin sons, Charles and Thomas, both of who grew to adulthood, and both of who followed their father in ministry. Now, Susanna was a, an amazing true partner uh, with her husband uh, in all of his spiritual endeavors and, and personally caring for him, uh, particularly during his black dark uh, depression days. Um, he had frequent bouts with physical maladies and she was there to care for him until she turned about 33 years old, became an invalid herself. And then they had to have care for both of them. Now the, the physical problems that Charles struggled with were gout and something called Bright's disease. Uh, gout is a, is a complex form of arthritis and it's extraordinarily painful. In Bright's disease, Bright's disease, a kidney malfunction of some kind, a kidney disease, and it too is very, very painful. Struggled with some, some serious physical things that caused him to be in, in regular bouts of severe pain. But that wasn't the, the gist of all of his suffering. He also was attacked by what he called heart sobs, or in another place he called them fainting fits, and still in another place he called them spiritual sorrows. These were, these were the worst of the, of the kind of emotional and psychological and spiritual miseries that, that filled Spurgeon's life. Now, some, some of his dark moments came from the physical side of things, the pain from the gout or Bright's disease, but some of it came from the once remarked that he thought that he had been marked with melancholy from his birth. There was no doubt uh, a, a condition uh, in his brain, perhaps a chemical thing that was missing that caused him great emotional and psychological trauma from the time of his, of his childhood. Sometimes he would collapse under, under that weight. It was so heavy and he would begin to, to weep, a deep and sobbing kind of weep, a weeping that, that reflected his tender conscience as he struggled before a holy and a righteous God. It got all mixed up, the physical pain, the emotional and psychological trauma, and then the spiritual fervor with which he wanted to serve the Lord. On top of all of those issues, 
Some believe that he suffered from PTSD. We know something about that in our culture. But it, when, uh, when he was uh, 22 years old, he was preaching one day at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which is a huge church uh, that he had built, capacity of about uh, 6,000 people. And some prankster was in the middle of the service that day and shouted out, fire. And in the stampede that occurred after his funny little gesture, seven people died and some 28 people were seriously injured. Spurgeon never, ever recovered from that moment. It got so bad that his wife said that he tottered on the verge of sanity and she feared that he would never, ever preach again. His friends uh, gathered around him, took to themselves to do what you and I would call a suicide watch. They wanted to make sure that Spurgeon continued to live. But he sought the Lord. He, he struggled with all of these forms of, of pain and suffering, but he sought the Lord. Listen to what he said. He said, causeless depression cannot be reasoned with, nor can David's heart it away. There's an iron bolt. That iron bolt which so mysteriously fastens the door of hope and holds our spirits in prison, it needs a heavenly hand to push it back. He sought regularly, moment by moment, the heavy hand of the Spirit of God to push back the bolt on the door of his suffering. He not only attacked his pain spiritually, but humanly speaking, he understood the value of that friend that says, what, you too? He, he recognized that it, it, it takes just one imperfect, maybe frazzled, maybe vulnerable step by a friend to come alongside, and that friend can help you through such a dark season. He urged everyone else around him to develop a, a deep well of compassion. He said one time, we should feel more for the prisoner if we knew more about the prison. If we took the time to come alongside our friends and our family who struggle, likely we would be in a better position to help them. Charles saw three main purposes, if you will, to the struggles of his life. He saw, he saw God at work. And here are the things that he, that he thought were happening. He saw the, 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 the struggles, the pain, the difficulty, the, the depression. He saw, saw that they would be tools to help keep him humble. Charles was an amazing man with an amazing mind. He was a consummate speaker the greatest preacher probably ever in the English language. And, and yet he, he realized that the struggles of his life were there to keep him humble. He secondly saw it as an unexpected reservoir for power, not of his own making, but of God's making, a, a surprising uh, place that he could draw from, a well that would, would bring uh, strength to his ministry. And lastly, he, uh, he saw it, all these struggles and pain 
as a way to prepare him for something new and different and greater. A, a young preacher boy who, who began his ministry in a tiny little church and ended up preaching uh, regularly in, in the largest auditorium uh, in uh, London of its, of its day. This is a man who saw God preparing him for amazing ministry. He, uh, he also understood the practical side of dealing with this kind of pain and difficulty. He had a whole host of, I'm gonna call them coping mechanisms, first starting with spiritual things. He, uh, he made sure and stressed in his life prayer and time in God's word. How many times have you heard that from a, a Bible teacher or a preacher? But it's true. The need to be uh, deeply invested in prayer, talking to God, deeply invested in, in Bible study, hearing from God. He memorized scripture as a regular part of his spiritual disciplines. He sought counsel from godly people that, that were around him. And then he focused himself on a regular basis on acts of service. Um, in, in a moment, I'll tell you about some of his ministries, but he was actively involved in helping the suffering of others. And physically, you know, he, he did things that helped him get through his struggles. He adjusted his work rhythms and his family rhythms. He made sure and took at least one full day a week off of his work. He worked 18 hours a day, six days a week, but Wednesdays was his day off. He loved spending time out in, in what he called creation. One of his favorite things to do was to walk during a thunderstorm. He said he could hear the voice of God. But creation and being outside rejuvenated his mind and his heart. He sought out lots of time where he could laugh with his friends over food and drink. He had uh, social occasions at his home on a regular basis. And of course, he took the medication of his day to, to help find some relief and an occasional cigar as well. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, Charles and his ministries. Interestingly enough, he did not go to college. Um, apparently he was being interviewed for a particular university and a, and a servant girl had walked him down the hallway and put him in a room uh, where she believed the principal was to interview him and in point of fact, the principal was somewhere else and the two of them never got to see each other. Uh, Spurgeon didn't go back. He felt like that was a, a crossroads and instead he began to work directly in the ministry. He started preaching. Um, his first church, he stayed about three years. His second little church, he stayed about four years. And then he ended up at what became uh, his final Place of ministry, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. Um, he spent some 38 years ministering in that congregation. He would preach at least 13 times a week, 13 times a week. Um, uh, a capacity I said a moment ago, 6,000 people, that's a lot of people. On one occasion, he preached to over 23,000 people uh, in, a, in a large uh, auditorium there in London. His sermons translated, even in that day, into 40 different languages. He started um, a uh, major literary society. He published a Christian magazine, and he was himself a prolific author. He wrote about 140 books in his lifetime. 
140 books. Uh, one writer says this, there is available more material written by Spurgeon than any other Christian author, living or dead. Among the things that he wrote, um, he spent 20 years researching and studying the book of Psalms and wrote the book, uh, the series of books called The Treasury of David. Even today, no self-respecting pastor would not have those volumes in their library. And speaking of libraries, he had a personal library back then of over 12,000 volumes, a thousand of which had been printed or, or published before the 1700s. That collection is still available, by the way. Spurgeon was called preachers. He was an amazing speaker and totally Christ-centered. The, the writers that talk about his preaching say that he did not preach to giraffes. What they meant was that he wasn't feeding those who, who uh, you know, could, could understand the more sophisticated uh, uh, principles of theology. The shelf of understanding was not high. He wanted to preach to the sheep. He put the cookies, as it were, on the bottom shelf because he wanted people to be able to understand and respond to God. His messages would feed souls by the millions back in the mid-1800s. And even today, you can download tons of his messages and feed your own soul. The thing I, I, I found interesting about him beyond his amazing speaking abilities was they kind of referred to him as a, a kind of activist, meaning he cared about his society. He was deeply involved in a, in a, a wide range of, of social issues. He built 66 different parachurch organizations during the time frame of his 38 years of ministry. He, he founded and ran a, a preacher's college. Um, he had specific ministries to, to prostitutes, to policemen, to, to the widows in the area. He was a strong believer that Christian organizations should not go in debt. He did not take a salary. He lived off of of speaking fees and, and book uh, royalties. But, but here he was trying to underscore or, 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 under, or undertake to build that metropolitan tabernacle. It was a huge building. So he personally paid for about a third of the construction of that, of that church building. One, one, uh, auto, or one biographer mentioned that at some point in his life, he might've been not worth $50 million, but he died with only 250000 in his bank account. Every dime that he earned uh, during the time of his life went into ministry. He had four, maybe five strong uh, decades of, of ministry opportunities, four of them in particular. In the 1850s, uh, he is uh, a youthful prodigy. He's the most popular preacher of his day. In the 1860s, he's focused on, on establishing all of those, what we would call gospel agencies. In the 1870s, he's formalizing all those ministries and running them in administration work. And in the 1880s, he got involved in a, a series of theological controversies and wrote extensively about it. But at 52 years of age, his health, both emotionally and psychologically and physically broken while resting in
So I, I ask you today, what can we learn from this amazing man, Charles Haddon Spurgeon? Well, I think there's at least two. Two things that we can take away from this man's life. One is, you and I both have to, to, to just understand that struggles, pain, suffering, emotional, psychological, physical, they're a normal part of the Christian life. But for some among us, it's significant. It's not just for a moment or a short season. It's a burden they carry most of their life. But in fact, that burden cannot weigh them down. We cannot just sit down and, and let the weight gain overcome us. Spurgeon had a backpack full of discomfort of all kinds. And he is an example of a man who was able to get up and, and work through and allow God to use all of that discomfort. He once remarked about the soul. He said, it's broken. It's broken in pieces. It's lanced. It's pricked with knives. It's dissolved. It's racked. It's pained. But we cannot give way to fear. Up. He said, up, chase your fears. Why would you be groaning in your dungeon? A reflection of Pilgrim's Progress. Why should giant despair forever beat you up? Drive him away. Look, guys, recognizing that for some, these kinds of conditions make life very, very difficult. We have to go on to say, we got to look at our accuser in the face and as he says it, whisper if we can't shout. We have to be able to stare the enemy in the face and say, yeah, you might be right. But Jesus, he wrote this, you might be right. Things are worse than I thought. But Jesus, you might be right. All seems lost. But Jesus. You might be right, I am abandoned, but Jesus, right, it seems too late, but Jesus, you might be right, I am out of reach, but Jesus, you might be right, I am a sinner, but Jesus, and you might be right, they might be better off without me, but Jesus. Yes. Give up? No. I'm reminded of the passage in Habakkuk chapter 3, one of my favorites. He, the, the, the prophet there echoes these thoughts of, of Spurgeon's. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Bottom line, the enemy may be convincing you that things right now are extraordinarily tough for you, but you need to push back and say, but Jesus but Jesus. 
I think there's a second thing we can take away from, from Spurgeon's life too. And that is, we are never alone in this kind of pain and despair. That is one of Satan's favorite tricks is to convince us we're by ourselves. He tries to make, think, make us think that we're the only ones that have ever gone through something like this. Right now uh, in our culture, uh, living in your neighborhood, uh, shopping at your grocery store, driving on the streets near your house, there are people who are struggling mightily, emotionally, mentally, physically, there's family pain or, 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 or a sense of isolation. The people lack resources and to a certain extent lacking hope. It is real and it does hurt, but I'm here to tell you there is a balm in Gilead. We are not alone. God cares. He notices. He pays attention and he responds with compassion. Matthew chapter 28 and 29 Jesus cries out and says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden or burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That, that yoke, I used to think, was a, a terrible thought. Why would he give us a yoke? Until I did a little study. Two things about that yoke. One, uh, the owner of animals would have yokes made tailor-made. They, they fit just right, right around the, the back end of the, of the beast of burden because they didn't want the animal to chafe. It, it wasn't supposed to hurt to do the work. It was tailor-made. And secondly, they almost always yoked up an older animal with a younger one. The older one being able to show them the ropes and carry the, the most of the burden. Isn't that how Jesus does it for you and I? A tailor-made yoke, and he's on the other end? You see, I think, I think Spurgeon understood that. Our suffering does not drive us into a quiet corner by ourselves. It must not. We need to recognize that we are not alone. In his love for Pilgrim's Progress, I guess he read it over 100 times or something in his lifetime, he had a particular um, uh, engraving, uh, we, we call it a picture, but it was an engraving that had a, a reference to a scene in Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, it's a scene where, where Christian is panicking. He's being swallowed up by, by a river and he's definitely going under. The, the particular portrait that Spurgeon loved showed Christian's companion, a guy by the name of Hopeful, who had, who had shown up and got into the river with him. And in this particular picture, Hopeful is pushing up with his arm. His arm is around Christian, and he's lifting up his, his hand, and he's shouting, Fear not, brother. I feel the bottom. Spurgeon would say, this is what Jesus does in our trials. He puts his arm around us. He points up. He shouts, fear not, you're not alone. The water may be deep, but the bottom is good, and I feel the bottom. Guys, if, if you have a, a friend or a loved one who's struggling right now, 
is in a season that looks pretty black. I, I want you to jump in. I want you to get into the river. I'm encouraging you to grab them by the arm and let them know. You can say the same thing to them. Fear not, brother. I can feel the bottom. And if you happen to be the person that is particularly heavy laden today, I want to remind you, you are not alone. You need to cling to Jesus. You need to sense and feel the warmth of his arm around you. Go ahead and feel the bottom. You are not alone. Well, thanks for coming today. This time together would not have been any fun without you. God bless you all. Have a great day.